Section 22 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine of Braganza, Chapter 1, Part 4. The king and queen left Portsmouth on the 27th, passed one night at Windsor, and arrived at Hampton Court on the 29th, on which day the twofold anniversaries of Charles's birth and restoration were celebrated, with more than ordinary festivity, in honor of the queen's arrival, and she was welcomed with bonfires and other tokens of popular rejoicing. When their majesties alighted from their coach, they passed between two lines of guards, both foot and cavalry. They were followed by the countesses of Pontevel and Penalva, the countess of Suffolk, and the other ladies and officers of the royal household. The Lord Chancellor, judges and counselors of state, were all assembled to congratulate the queen on her arrival and to kiss her hand. And the foreign ministers were also there to offer the congratulations of their respective courts. Then all the nobility, gentry, and ladies of the court were presented to her, classed, according to their degrees, in different rooms, through which Her Majesty passed. After these fatiguing ceremonies, the queen retired to her bedroom. The same evening, the Duchess of York came from London in her barge to offer her homage to her royal sister-in-law. When she landed, King Charles received her at the garden gate by the waterside, and leading her by the hand, conducted her to the queen, who received her in her chamber. The duchess offered to kiss her hand, but the queen prevented her by raising her in her arms and saluting her. The royal family then seated themselves near the queen's bed and conversed with her. It is probable that they then partook of Catherine's favorite beverage, tea, which became a fashionable refreshment in England soon after her marriage with Charles II, though not exactly introduced by her. Yet, as Catherine of Braganza was certainly the first tea-drinking queen of England, she has had the credit of setting the fashion for the use of that temperate beverage, in an age when ladies, as well as gentlemen, at all times of the day, heated or stupefied their brains with ale or wine, for the want of the more refined substitutes of tea, coffee, and chocolate. The use of these simple luxuries had in time a beneficial influence on the manners of all classes of society, by forming a counter-charm against habits of intoxication, and have promoted the progress of civilization in no slight degree. Waller wrote a complimentary poem on tea, commended by the queen, in which are these lines. The best of queens and best of herbs we owe, to that bold nation who the way did show, to the fair region where the sun doth shine. The morning after the arrival of the royal bride at Hampton Court, she was dressed for the reception of her morning levee, as early as eleven o'clock, when the Duchess of Ormond, her daughter, Lady Cavendish, and Lady Fanshawe were presented to her. Charles himself presented Lady Fanshawe to his queen, with a deserved eulogium on her merits, and those of her gallant husband, on which Catherine gave her hand to Lady Fanshawe to kiss, and graciously promised to regard her with favor. Evelyn, who had the honor of kissing Her Majesty's hand on that day, gives the following description of her and her countrywomen in his diary. May 30th. The Queen arrived with a train of Portuguese ladies in their monstrous fardingales, or garden fontas, their complexions olivander, or dark olive, and sufficiently unagreeable. Her Majesty in the same habit, her foretop long, and turned aside very strangely. 
she was yet of the handsomest countenance of all the rest and though low of stature prettily shaped languishing and excellent eyes her teeth wronging her mouth by sticking a little too far out for the rest lovely enough it is evident from this account that catherine had had the ill taste to resume the ungraceful costume to which she had been accustomed perhaps the deceitful compliments of her gallant brother-in-law the duke of york as to its becomingness had encouraged her to yield to the persuasions of her duenna and her other portuguese attendants who urged her to wear no other many years afterwards james the second told the abbess and nuns of chalot that don alfonso king of portugal wished to compel his sister queen catherine to adhere to the fashions of her own country and that she had taken infinite trouble to induce the english ladies to adopt it and had endeavoured to prevail on king charles to use his influence with them for that purpose but the ladies dressed in the french fashions and would not hear of any other constantly sending artificers and dressmakers to paris to import the newest modes as he added they do to this very day. Catherine certainly appeared to much greater advantage when she exchanged her foretop and fartingale for the graceful costume in which Lely has depicted her among the Hampton Court galaxy of beauties. There is another portrait of this queen, still more charming, in the historical gallery at Versailles, by the same delightful artist, which merits a particular description. Her eyes, complexion, and hair are all beautiful, dark but brilliant, such as poetry has always associated with the idea of a Portuguese or Spanish dona. Her hair, no longer rendered ridiculous by the periwig arrangement of her Portuguese friseur or barber, as he was denominated, is shown in its natural beauty, gathered together in a simple knot, from which the ringlets fall carelessly at will. She is dressed in black velvet, trimmed with rich point lace, the sleeves are full, but looped up with black ribbons, to show the delicate ruffled cambric sleeve of her chemise. Her bosom and arms are perfectly lovely, both in form and color. She has black velvet bracelets, clasped with pearls on her arms, and holds a bunch of orange blossoms. This was probably one of her bridal portraits, painted ere the short-lived beauty of a Portuguese lady had faded, and perhaps, from the smiling expression of her face, during the few brief days that she maintained her empire over the fickle heart of her royal husband. No one would certainly recognize in either of these portraits, any more than in the one before described in the late Strawberry Hill collection, the original of the distorted description which Lord Dartmouth, not contented with the simile of the bat, has left of this queen in his notes on Burnett's history. She was, says he, very short and broad, and of a swarthy complexion, one of her four teeth stood out, which held up her upper lip, and besides she was very proud and ill-favored. This picture, it would rather appear, belonged to Catherine's decline of life. Rearsby had an early sight of the new queen. He said she was a very little woman, with a tolerably pretty face, but neither in person nor manners could stand in competition with Lady Castlemaine, the finest woman of her age, on that point, opinions, however, began to differ. The queen was brought, a few days since, to Hampton Court, notes Pepys, and all people say of her that she is a very fine, handsome lady, and very discreet, and the king is pleased enough with her, which I fear will put Madame Castlemaine's nose out of joint. Three days after, he adds, I found my lady, that is the Countess of Sandwich, come from Hampton Court, where the queen hath used her very civilly, and my lady tells me, 
is a most pretty woman. Yesterday, Sir R. Ford told me that the alderman of the city did attend her in her habits and did present her with a gold cup and 1,000 pounds in gold therein. But he told me that they are so poor in their chamber that they were fain to call two or three aldermen to raise fines to make up this sum. The free trade to India and the Brazils, which was secured to England by the marriage of Catherine of Braganza with Charles II, soon opened an inexhaustible source of wealth and prosperity to the merchants of London, who had suffered so severely during the iron rule of the Commonwealth and Protectorate. It was the 2nd of June that the Lord Mayor and Aldermen presented their addresses and gifts to Catherine. Now saw I her Portuguese ladies, says Evelyn, and the Garda Damas, or Mother of the Maids, and the Old Knight, a lock of whose hair quite covered the rest of his bald pate, bound on by a thread very oddly. Assuredly the Frisure's art must have been at a very low ebb at the court of Lisbon, as all the result of their labors was to excite the mirth of the merry monarch and his officers of state. Fifty years later, however, a taste to the full as barbarous prevailed in England when powdered toupees and periwigs deformed all countenances during the reigns of the three first Hanoverian monarchs. Evelyn's description of Hampton Court, as it was furnished and adorned for the reception of the bride of Charles II, calls forth a sigh over the departed glories of the domestic palace of the Tudor and Stuart monarchs. Hampton Court, says he, is as noble and uniform a pile as any Gothic architecture can make it. There is incomparable furniture in it, especially hangings designed by Raphael, very rich with gold, especially the Caesarian triumphs of Andrea Montaigne, formerly the Duke of Mantua's. Of the tapestries, I believe the world can show nothing nobler of the kind than the stories of Abraham and Tobit, the gallery of horns is very particular for the vast beams of stags, elks, antelopes, etc. The queen's bed was an embroidery of silver on crimson velvet and cost 8,000 pounds, being a present made by the States of Holland when His Majesty returned. The great looking glass and toilet of beaten massive gold were given by the queen mother. The queen brought over with her from Portugal such Indian cabinets as had never before been seen here. Catherine's Portuguese chronicler speaks with enthusiasm of the hangings of silk and gold, the embroidered canopies, chairs and beds, and the valuable paintings that decorated this royal retreat, to which may be added the testimony of Pepys, who walked from Teddington on purpose to look at the noble furniture and brave pictures. On the 8th of June, Evelyn says, he saw Her Majesty at supper privately in her bedchamber, and the next day heard her Portuguese band, consisting of pipes, harps, and very ill voices. The new and brilliant scenes, in which the convent-bred queen was now required to play the leading part, were at first strange and fatiguing to her, and she took far more delight in the practice of her devotional exercises than in all the seductive gaieties which surrounded her. She heard mass daily, and but for the earnest persuasions of the ambassador, who will be remembered as her godfather, she would have spent more time in her chapel than was at all compatible with her duties as a wife and queen. It required all the influence of this prudent counselor to induce her to go into public as often as she was required, or to tolerate the freedom of manners in this dissipated court, where infidelity and licentiousness walked openly unveiled. Catherine was wedded to the most witty and fascinating prince in the world, 
constitutionally good-humored, but without religion or moral principles, brave, reckless, and devoted to pleasure, requiring constant excitement and frequent change. The simplicity of his young queen's character, her freshness, innocence, and confiding fondness for himself, pleased him. The naivete of her manners amused him, and as a new toy, she was prized and cherished for the first six weeks of their marriage. Nothing, in fact, could exceed the lover-like devotion of his behavior to his royal bride for that period, which was spent in all sorts of pleasures and amusements that he could devise for her entertainment. Sylvan sports, excursions in the fields, the parks, or on the Thames, occupied the court by day, while the evenings were devoted to comedies, music, and balls, in which the king, his brother, and the lords and ladies joined, the king excelling them all in the air and grace of his dancing, which the queen applauded, to his great delight, while he continued to treat her with every possible demonstration of tenderness and respect. This auspicious state of things lasted as long as Lady Castlemaine was confined to her lying in chamber, she having been brought to bed of a son a few days after the king's marriage. This boy her husband considered as his heir, and insisted on having it christened by a priest of his own religion. She proclaimed it to be the king's son, and had it christened over again by a Protestant minister, when the king himself acted as one of the sponsors, with the Earl of Oxford and the Countess of Suffolk, after which she quarreled with her husband and left his house, with all her household, carrying with her all the plate and furniture. Lord Castlemaine withdrew to France. She took up her abode at Richmond to be nearer to the king, who, according to general report, renewed his guilty intimacy with her. Not contented with receiving the visits of the king at her own house, Lady Castlemaine had the audacity, after making her infamy public, to insist on intruding herself into the presence of his injured and virtuous queen. Catherine of Berganza had been fully informed, before she quitted Lisbon, of the king's previous infatuation with regard to this woman, and the queen, her mother, had charged her never to permit her name to be mentioned in her hearing. Acting on this sensible advice, the royal bride had conducted herself with so much prudence and delicacy in avoiding all allusions to this subject that Charles appears not to have had the slightest suspicion that she knew anything about it, till he presented her with a list of the ladies whom he recommended for appointments in her household. At the head of this list, Catherine was startled with seeing the dreaded name of Lady Castlemaine. She instantly pricked it out, and cut short all remonstrances from the king, by telling him he must either grant her that privilege, or send her back to Lisbon. Charles, who had been accustomed to implicit compliance with all his wishes from his young wife, was much offended at this unexpected demonstration of her determination to have a will of her own on suitable occasions. Catherine, with greater reason, was discontented, as Pepys says, a whole day and night upon it, till the king pacified her, by promising to have nothing more to do with Lady Castlemaine, a promise which he instantly violated. This alarming interruption to Catherine's dream of wedded happiness occurred about the third week in July, before she had been married quite two months. It was the first symptom of the renewed influence of Lady Castlemaine over the mind of the king after her recovery from her lying in. The next thing Charles did was to outrage all decency by leading this shameless woman into the queen's chamber and presenting her to her majesty before the assembled court. 
To the surprise of everyone, Catherine received her graciously and permitted her to kiss her hand, for her foreign ear, not yet familiar to the sound of English names, had not identified in that which the king had, of course, pronounced unintelligibly, the style and title of his insolent paramour, and she was a stranger to her person. A whisper from one of the indignant Portuguese ladies who stood behind her majesty's chair admonished her of the fact. As soon as she was aware of the insult she had received, Catherine's color changed, her eyes suffused with tears. She struggled for a moment to repress her feelings, but it was a struggle that nearly cost her her life, for the blood gushed from her nostrils, and she was carried from the apartment in a fit. The following mystical notice of this memorable scene was given by Clarendon in a letter to his friend, the Duke of Ormond. The king is perfectly recovered from his indisposition in which you left him. I wish he were free from all other. I have had, since I saw you, three or four long conferences with better temper than before. I have likewise twice spoken at large with the queen. The lady hath been at court and kissed her hand and returned that night. I cannot tell you there was no discomposure. I am not out of all hope, and that is all I can yet say. I sent this by Sir A. Broderick, and so shall not need to use a cipher, but hereafter I shall always use cipher when I write on this subject, and no other. Therefore you must take pains to decipher them yourself. Charles, like most aggressors, assumed the tone of an injured person, and so far from expressing the slightest compunction for the unprovoked affront he had put on his consort. He was so unreasonable as to regard the too visible effect of the pangs caused by his own misconduct as a crime in poor Catherine. He felt that the injured princess, whom he had vowed to love and cherish, had, in her speechless agony, pale and bathed in tears and blood, pleaded against him before men and angels, and that to every right-thinking person in his court he must stand condemned. He therefore chose to treat her illness as a burst of jealousy ending in a hysterical paroxysm. He complained loudly of her ill-temper and perversity, and insisted that she had a right to make a proper reparation to Lady Castlemaine for having injured her reputation by a public insult, and that the poor lady had no other refuge from public contempt than the queen consenting to receive her as lady of the bedchamber. This Catherine refused with passionate indignation. Charles then imposed the stern authority of king and husband. Clarendon remonstrated most earnestly with the king on the extreme cruelty of his behavior to his wife in laying commands on her, with which, to use his words, flesh and blood could not comply. He put his majesty in mind of what he had heard him lately say of the like conduct in Louis the Fourteenth, and that his observations on his cousin's conduct in making his mistress live in the presence of the queen was that it was such a piece of ill nature that he could never be guilty of, for if ever he could be guilty of having a mistress after he had a wife, which he hoped he should never be, she should never come where his wife was. Charles, like Hazel, had not imagined himself capable of acting a part, whose ugliness was so apparent to him, when seen through the medium of the conduct of another, and yet he did the same, and even exaggerated the baneful example he had previously detested. He was, however, utterly steeled against the pleadings of conscience and humanity by the shameless woman who had so entangled his soul in her unhallowed snares, and when his own words were quoted to him by his honest minister, he said, that if he heeded such lectures, 
the country would think him in pupilage, and that Lady Castlemaine as well as himself would seem ridiculous, and therefore he should exact conformity from his wife, which would be the only hard thing he should ever require of her, and which she herself might make very easy, for the lady would behave with all duty and humility unto her majesty, which, if she should ever fail to do, she should never see his face again, and that he would engage never to put any other domestic about his queen without her approbation. He finished this loathsome sophistication by requiring Clarendon to use all these arguments to induce full compliance from her. When, however, he found that Clarendon and Ormond both concurred in reprobating his conduct, he endeavored to intimidate those faithful servants by writing the following letter to Clarendon, which reflects more disgrace on him than folios of vituperation from the pens of his enemies. Hampton Court, Thursday morning. I forgot, when you were here last, to desire you to give Roderick good counsel not to meddle any more with what concerns my Lady Castlemaine, and to let him have a care how he is to author any scandalous reports. For if I find him guilty, I will make him repent of it to the last moment of his life. And now I am entered on this matter, I think it very necessary to give you a little good counsel in it. Least you may think, by making a further stir in the business, you may divert me from my resolution, which all the world shall never do, and I wish I may be unhappy in this world and in the world to come, if I fail in the least degree of what I have resolved, which is making my Lady Castlemaine of my wife's bedchamber, and whosoever I find use any endeavors to hinder this resolution of mine, except it be only to myself, I will be his enemy to the last moment of his life. You know how true a friend I have been to you. If you will oblige me eternally, make this business as easy to me as you can, of what opinion soever you are of. For I am resolved to go through with this matter. Let what will come on, which again I solemnly swear before Almighty God. Therefore, if you desire to have the continuance of my friendship, meddle no more with this business, except it be to bear down all false and scandalous reports, and to facilitate what I am sure my honor is so much concerned in. And whosoever I find to be my Lady Castlemaine's enemy in this matter, I do promise, upon my word, to be his enemy as long as I live. You may show this letter to my Lord Lieutenant, and if you have both a mind to oblige me, carry yourselves to me as friends in this matter. Charles R. Clarendon, then, against his own better feelings, undertook the ungracious office of endeavoring to persuade the queen to submit to the king's pleasure. In his first interview with Catherine, my lord chancellor found himself greatly embarrassed. He began by lamenting the misunderstanding that existed between their majesties, using some expressions which convinced the queen that the king had imputed the blame to her, on which she passionately protested her innocence with such a torrent of tears that he thought it better to withdraw, coolly observing, that he would wait upon her in a fitter season, and when she should be more capable of receiving humble advice from her servants, who wished her well, and so departed. The next day he waited upon her again, at her own appointment, and found her more composed. She vouchsafed to excuse the passion she had been in, telling him, she looked upon him as one of the few friends she had, from whom she would willingly at all times receive counsel, but that she hoped he would not wonder or blame her, 
if, having greater misfortunes upon her, and having to struggle with greater difficulties than had ever befallen any woman of her condition, she sometimes gave vent to that anguish which was ready to break her heart. Clarendon replied, with many professions of his devotion to her service, although, he says, it might be his duty to tell her some things which might render him ungracious to her. The queen meekly replied, that he should never be more welcome to her than when he told her of her faults. And Clarendon observed, that she had been little beholden to her education, which had given her so little insight into the follies and imperfections of mankind, of which he presumed her own country could have given more instances than this cold climate could afford. Had she been thus warned, he added, she would not have deemed her own condition so insupportable. To this grave philosophy, the queen, with some blushing and confusion, accompanied with tears, said, that she did not think she should have found the king engaged in his affections to another lady. Clarendon intimated, that her majesty must have been very little experienced in the world, if she imagined that the king had preserved his heart so many years, for a consort he had never seen, and asked her, whether she believed, when it should please God to send a queen to Portugal, that she would find that court so full of virtuous affections? At this dry query, Catherine could not repress a smile, and a few pleasant observations, which encouraged the Chancellor to communicate the purport of his visit. He told her, he came to her with a message from the king, which, if she received, as he hoped she would, she would be the happiest queen in the world, that the king said whatever correspondences he had entertained with other ladies, before he saw her majesty, concerned her not, neither ought she to inquire into them, as he intended to dedicate himself entirely to her, and that if she would meet his affection, with the same good humor that she had been accustomed to do, she should have a life of perfect felicity. Catherine might have replied that, so far from inquiring into his majesty's past follies, she had maintained a dignified silence on a subject that was public to all the world, till he attempted to force his paramour into her presence, and then the respect she owed to herself and all the ladies of her court required that she should exclude her from her own circle, as an unfit associate for virtuous gentlewomen, but instead of saying a word in her own justification, she expressed her acknowledgments for the king's graciousness, thanked the chancellor more than enough, and begged him to help in returning her thanks to his majesty, and in obtaining his pardon for any passion or peevishness of which she might have been guilty, and to assure him of all future obedience and duty. The veteran statesman, when he saw the queen in this Griselda vein, thought he might venture to inform her of the proof of duty which his majesty required of her, with regard to Lady Castlemaine. Fire flashed from the eyes of Catherine at the proposition, and she indignantly replied, that the king's insisting on such a condition could only proceed from his hatred to her person, and his desire to expose her to the contempt of the world, who would think her worthy of such an affront if she submitted to it adding, that she would rather put herself on board any small vessel and return to Lisbon. Clarendon interrupted her by telling her, that she had not the disposal of her own person, even to go out of the house where she then was, without the king's leave, and therefore advised her not to speak any more of Portugal, where there was enough who wished her to be, and admonished her, 
not to show off any such passion to the king, but if she thought proper to deny anything he asked her, to do it in such a manner, as should look rather like an evasion than a positive refusal, that his majesty might not be provoked to put himself into a passion also, in which case she was likely to get the worst of it. There was sound sense, and only too much truth in all that Clarendon told the poor queen, but even from his own account of the matter, there was neither sympathy for her sufferings, nor much courtesy displayed in his manner of communicating it to her. He says, however, that he told the king all the good and kind things her majesty had said of him, of her dutiful expressions, and his entire belief that her unwillingness to obey him, proceeded from her passionate love of him, and entreated his majesty not to press her further on this painful subject for a few days. Charles, however, had other counsellors, who persuaded him to insist upon instant compliance with his commands, for if he allowed his will to be disputed on this point, he must resolve hereafter to do as his wife would have him. Charles, who was accustomed to succumb to the violence of his imperious mistress, so far as to solicit pardon on his knees, every time he ventured to resist her unreasonable demands, was terrified at incurring the suspicion that he showed the slightest indulgence to his wife, and resolutely prepared to compel her to submission. The fire, says Clarendon, flamed that night higher than ever. The king reproached the queen with stubbornness and want of duty, and she him with tyranny and want of affection. He used threats, which he never intended to put in execution, and she talked loudly, how ill she was treated, and that she would go back again to Portugal. He replied, she would do well first to learn whether her mother would receive her, and he would soon give her an opportunity of knowing that, for he was sending home forthwith all her Portuguese servants, who had, he knew, encouraged her in her perverseness. The passion and noise of the night reached too many ears to be secret the next day, and the whole court was full of that which ought to have been known to nobody, the mutual carriage of the royal pair confirming all that could be imagined of their dissension. They spoke not, they hardly looked on one another. Everybody, continues Clarendon, was glad they were so far from town, for they were still at Hampton Court, and that there were so few witnesses of all that passed. The queen sat melancholic in her chamber in tears, except when she drove them away by more violent passion and choleric discourse, and the king sought his diversion in company that said and did all things to please him, and there he spent all his nights, and towards morning disturbed the queen's repose by coming to her chamber, for he never slept in any other place. If Catherine had possessed sufficient self-command and knowledge of the human heart to enable her to adapt herself to Charles's peculiar temper, she might, by gentle and endearing appeals to his tenderness and his reason, by the exertion of all the powers of wit and fascination she possessed, by the use of caresses and even flattery, discreetly applied, have won her way and established her empire over his wayward heart as easily as any other woman but Catherine loved him too well to dissemble her feelings. She piqued herself too highly on the purity of her conduct and the justice of her cause, and she could not condescend to soothe and flatter where she had been aggrieved. She gave way either to sullenness and tears, or to the use of bitter reproaches, which, of course, only aggravated the king against her. Charles was, however, more deeply offended at her wishing to leave him than at all her angry expressions beside. He talked, says Clarendon, 
with more than his natural passion of what had passed, and of the foolish extravagancy, as he called it, of returning to Portugal, and reiterated his resolution of sending away all the Portuguese, to whom he imputed his wife's frowardness, protested he would gain his point, and bade him go and talk to the queen again. Clarendon complied, and when he was admitted to see her majesty, took the liberty of reproving her for the want of temper, for which she blamed the king. Catherine, with tears, acknowledged that she had been in too much passion, and said something she ought not to have said, for which she would willingly ask the king's pardon on her knees, though his manner of treating her had wonderfully surprised her, and might be some excuse for more than ordinary commotion. She concluded by praying, that God would give her patience, and hope that she should not again be transported into the like passion. Clarendon said, he hoped that he might experience the effect of her good resolution, in listening to his arguments, why she should submit to the king's wishes concerning the lady, which he did not come to justify, but to ask her whether she thought it were in her power to resist. Catherine said, She knew it was in her own power, and that she could not despair of the king's justice and goodness diverting him from the prosecution of a command, as unbecoming in him as it was dishonorable to her, that she would not dispute his majesty's power, but she thought he was bound to leave her the choice of her own servants, and, if it were otherwise, she had been deceived. Clarendon told her, It was presumed that no wife would refuse to receive a servant that was esteemed and recommended by her husband, and that it was better for her to submit in this instance than it should be done without her consent. Catherine calmly replied, that as a matter of conscience, she could not consent to that which was likely to give an opportunity for sin. Here the Chancellor, who, by the by, had shown little tact in the hard dry manner in which he had laid down the law of passive obedience to the aggrieved princess, for the first time condescended to the use of a complimentary argument by telling her that, he thought her majesty had too mean and low an opinion of her person and her parts, if she thought it could be in the power of any other lady to rival her. The queen listened with intense attention and great patience to the chancellor's discourse, sometimes with complacency, but oftener with an incredulous smile, as if she did not believe what he said, and when he had finished, she briefly but firmly declared, that the king might do what he pleased, but she never would consent to his requisition. Charles next upbraided her with a non-performance of the matrimonial treaty, with regard to the portion, which, although it was no fault of hers, must have been a grievous mortification to poor Catherine. He insulted her venerable kinsman and friend, the Portuguese ambassador, on her account, and threw the unlucky Jew factor, Duarte Silva, into prison because he had not been able to complete his arrangements for paying the sum of money for which he was answerable into the exchequer, for which, in truth, the appointed time had not arrived. Catherine took all these outrages as personal indignities offered to herself, and it was Charles's intention that she should feel them as such, his whole study being now to mortify her. He seldom came into the queen's company, says Clarendon, and when he did, he spake not to her, but spent his time with those who made it their business to laugh at all the world, and who were as bold with God Almighty as with any of his creatures. End of section 22